This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4 as we continue our series in 1 Peter on Sunday mornings. While you're turning there, I do want to just add to what Mike said, my welcome uh, to all of you from Independent in Savannah. Um, We're delighted that you are here and happy to have you with us this morning. I've actually been to your church a couple of times, not for a service, but uh, just to see the building. Uh, A friend of my sister's at one time was Terry Johnson's assistant, and uh, she had lunch with her and she took us through the building. I think it had just been renovated. Um, So if you have not been to Independent, if you're down in Savannah, I would encourage you to go there. The church was recently celebrated 250th anniversary. It was founded in the mid-1700s. So uh, by American standards, a very old church. And uh, so uh, beautiful, beautiful building. Uh, I think if you went there, uh, you would in many ways feel at home. Uh, Terry Johnson, their pastor, has done a great job there, preaches the gospel, teaches the scriptures, and uh, just doing a great work there in Savannah. So, uh, But it is a pleasure to have you all with us today. And uh, for these guys, uh, you'll go to Sunday school and go home, but they, like me, like Mike, will be back in the 11 o'clock service uh, to worship the Lord a second time, which is a blessing. So uh, today, this morning, we want to look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we are looking at verses 7 through 11. Some people have sat through both services just to see if I actually do say the same thing in both services. The answer is more or less. Hear the word of God, 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we can turn to your word and think about what it says. Father, we pray that as we do, your spirit would guide us into your truth. We pray that you would minister to us your grace in it. We pray, Father, that you will correct those things in us that are not pleasing to you and equip us and strengthen us to do the things that are and to live as your people. Father, help us to worship you as we study the scriptures together, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. Well, it's been 2,000 years since Peter wrote those words, which maybe has made you pause and think, yeah, was Peter 
wrong when he said the end of all things is at hand. Well, knowing you and knowing this is the Bible we're talking about, and I hope, uh, I trust you knowing me, you know that the answer to that question is, was Peter mistaken? No. No. The mistake is not with Peter, it's with us. If we think that what Peter is saying here is that uh, you know, within a matter of weeks or at most months, Jesus would reappear and bring history to its conclusion, bring in the day of judgment, usher in the new heavens and new earth, that hasn't happened yet. This is God's word. God's certainly not mistaken. Peter, writing on the inspiration of the Spirit, was not mistaken. So the mistake has to lie with us if we interpret it in that way. And in fact, that is mistaken, because that's not what Peter is saying, obviously. Because the word he uses here for end, while it can certainly mean the the termination of something, the, the true end, it can also have the idea of an end stage, the the final period of time, and in fact, that's more the idea that Peter is talking about here. Uh, It would be somewhat akin to the the phrase you find in the scriptures, the last days. Paul says we're living in the last days, or in these last days, people will be lovers of self. The point is not that there's only four or five days left. The point is we live in that period of time after the life and ministry, the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. We live in that final stage of redemptive history of God's work of salvation before Christ comes back. We're not like the people of the Old Testament who were awaiting the first coming of the Messiah. We are awaiting the second coming of the Messiah. We are awaiting that day when history is brought to an end. But we are in that last stage of God's saving work where we do anticipate the coming of Christ. Now, whether Peter would have been surprised to learn that Jesus' return would not be at least for another 2,000 years, whether that would surprise him or not, we don't know. But that's really not the point of what he is saying here. The point that he is making here is we live in the resurrection age, that we have died with Christ, been raised to new life in him. We live in this period of time as citizens of the age to come, citizens of heaven, still here in this fallen world, yes, but fundamentally and profoundly changed because of who we are in Christ, because of our union to him and his death and in his resurrection life. So that, like Paul, we would say it's our desire to know the power of his resurrection, the power of that new life, at work in us here and now. And that's what Peter's been talking about in this letter, that we are new creations in Christ, as Paul says to the Corinthians, that that changed status will inevitably and profoundly alter the way we live. As we've said before, Christianity is not about being good. Christianity is about the power of the risen Christ in us. So we're not just putting on a show. We are deeply changed inwardly because we are new creations in Christ Jesus. And that will inevitably change the way we live. What does that look like? Well, Peter goes on to spell that out here. But before he does, notice he doesn't just say the end end of who we were as sinners, but he says the end of all things. Christ changes us, yes, but Christ's death and resurrection has implications for the whole world. All things 
Not just my private life, not just my religious life, not just this or that, but everything that goes on in this, in this world. I like the way one writer puts it. Nothing and no one is exempt from the redemptive process that will bring deliverance to some and condemnation to others. Therefore, the Christian worldview vitally involves all things. The Christian faith is not, I love this, the Christian faith is not merely an anthropological phenomenon that by custom is exercised on Sunday morning in a church building. For some people who profess to be Christians, that's pretty much it, if that, that they're in church on Sunday morning. Otherwise, it makes no difference. But it's not that. The gospel of Christ includes that, yes, but it's not all that. The gospel of Christ is a reality of cosmic scope that touches everyone and everything on the planet. Peter's readers are to allow this reality to govern the way they think and live. And you see, that's what Peter's talking about here. Who we are in Christ changes everything, including how we as believers interact with each other, how we live together as the body of Christ. And as we see in this passage, Peter calls us to live out Christ's victory over sin and death, over the powers that be in this world, in the context of our community as believers, as a church, as the body of Christ, Christian community. What does it look like? Well, Peter gives us four ways, four practical ways to live out Christ's life, Christ's new life in us, in the context of the church, a community of believers. Four ways that he mentions. First of all, he says we live it out with our minds. We live it out with the way that we think. Notice what he says in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. It's here, this final stage where the last thing to happen is the return of Christ in glory and in judgment, bringing salvation to his people. Therefore, because this is the case, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-control, we think of self-discipline. And it has to do with that, but the word Peter uses also has to do with, with thinking. Because obviously our thinking controls how we live, what we do. Uh, and certainly the last word, sober-minded, has the idea of being serious, thinking clearly uh, about who we are and what we do. Peter says, because this is now our situation, then we need to be sharp in our thinking. We need to be serious, sober-minded in the way that we think. Now, this is important especially because of what he's just been writing about. Notice in the verses just before this, uh, and Peter has been talking about our suffering as believers. Um, he says to them, you know, the time is for your pagan lifestyle is past. The time you spent doing those things is sufficient. And he lists some of those things. Um, in verse 3, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Pretty much just the opposite of sober, serious-minded thinking. But now, as believers, now that they are in Christ, now that they live in these last times, it's time to put away those things. It's time to be clear in our thinking. That means understanding who Christ is and what he's done. It means understanding who we are and our need of his grace every day. It means understanding his word, being serious about thinking the thoughts that God has put in the scriptures, the doctrine, the teaching that is there in all these ways. We need to exercise this clear-minded thinking. It doesn't mean that we're uh, no fun. It doesn't mean that we're morose killjoys. It just means 
that we think seriously and deeply about how we live. We're intentional uh, in the way that we follow Christ. Now, notice why he says this is important. You need to be this way for the sake of your prayers. I don't know if you associate clear thinking with praying or not. Uh, But Peter says that's that's the first reason that we need to be serious in our thinking. Prayer is not mindless. Prayer is not losing yourself in some divine ecstasy. Prayer involves thinking. It involves rationality. It involves communication. It involves interaction with the Lord on a rational basis. We need to be sober-minded, clear-thinking. Uh, for the sake of our prayer, so that we are able to pray in a right way. Now, remember who wrote this. This was Peter. And I don't know if Peter was thinking of this incident when he wrote these words. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I'm sure Peter thought about a lot of things that happened in his time with Jesus uh, now and later in life as he reflected back on those times that he walked with Jesus, some things he'd just as soon forget. Remember when Jesus was with his disciples in the garden, And he says, uh, you know, come over with me and and watch with me and pray. And uh, and Jesus goes off and prays and he comes back to his disciples. And what does he find? They're what? They're they're asleep. Not exactly sober minded, (laughs) no minded. They've gone to sleep. I don't know if Peter was thinking about that. Uh, Sleep is not quite the same thing. But yet, well, even if we're awake physically, sometimes we're asleep at our prayers. We're either saying things automatically, our mind has wandered, whether we're praying privately or praying you know, publicly here in the context of worship. Our minds need to be engaged in prayer. And that's the first reason he lists. It's certainly not the only reason. And he goes on to talk about some other ways that thinking would apply. We live it out with our minds, but he says we also live it out with our hearts. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Not just in our thinking, but in our hearts, or in terms of loving one another. Now, loving involves the mind, to be sure. It involves thinking. It's it's more than just a feeling. But this love for one another involves a heart-level reaction toward one another, heart-level compassion for one another, heart-level empathy for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, he emphasizes this quite strongly. Look at verse 8. He says, above all, kind of reflects Jesus teaching the greatest commandments, is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? To love our neighbor as ourselves. The two great commandments on which all the rest of the law and the prophets hang involve love. Love for God, love for one another, love your neighbor as yourself, or as Jesus said in the upper room, to love one another as I have loved you. So love in the vertical dimension toward God, and now as Peter's describing it here, loving one another. I think that's why he says above all, because this is such a critical thing from the commandment of Jesus. He says keep loving one another. This is something you don't just do once or twice and consider it done. Paul says don't owe any man anything except the ongoing debt to love one another. That's not a debt we'll ever pay off. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So three ways that, that Peter is emphasizing how important this is. Above all, it's continuous. Keep doing it. And do it earnestly, not half-heartedly, not haphazardly, not carelessly, but earnestly, seriously, intentionally, 
sometimes involving sacrifice of time or resources to show the love of Christ for one another. He emphasizes this, and why? Because this is vital to the existence of a church. He says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, when he says that, he's not speaking theologically. You know, the, the, the blood of Christ covers us. It atones for us. It absorbs the wrath of God for us. So he's not saying that, that love atone. We don't atone for each other in this way. He's certainly not saying that love covers over in the sense of denying or hiding a multitude of sins. You know, it's not saying you know, that we keep our skeletons in the closet. We, we, we cover over sin. We pretend like it's not there or it doesn't happen. He's not saying that you can't practice church discipline when there is sin in the church. It needs to be addressed in that way. What's he saying? When he says love covers a multitude of sins, he's saying it covers them in the sense that it absorbs them. It dampens them. It, it keeps them from from spreading. It keeps them from aggravating and getting worse and dividing people and harming the church. There's a statement Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that I think illustrates what Peter's getting at here. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking about a tragic situation where you have Christians suing other Christians, taking them to civil court. And Paul is is deeply bothered by that, not least of all because of the witness or lack of witness that that has for the world. Here we talk about the love of our Savior and our love for one another, and you get Christians suing each other. Look at what what Paul says uh, in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be there's no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Now listen to this. This is what he says. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It doesn't matter who wins the case. You've both lost. The church is lost. Christ is lost. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Now here's the point. Listen to this. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, he's saying, why not just absorb the wrong done to you for the sake of Christ and by the grace of Christ? When you do that, it it has a tendency to stop evil from spreading. But it also bears a good witness to the one who has wronged you. It's returning good for evil. And it may be that the Lord will use that to convict that person about the wrong that they've done for you and to bring real reconciliation. But you can absorb the wrong done for the sake of Christ, knowing that he's going to make all things right and knowing that he himself absorbed a great deal of wrong for your sake. For the sins that you did. So Paul says, why not take this attitude instead of insisting on your rights? Why not rather, for the sake of Christ, the sake of the gospel, the sake of the church and the world, why not rather be wronged and just absorb it, give it over to Jesus and say, Lord, I trust you to make it right in your time. I think that's exactly what Peter is saying when he says love covers over a multitude of sins. It ignores the slight 
By the way, often when people offend you, they don't mean to. Very rarely does someone just outright mean to offend you. There are times when people do. But some people take offense when none is intended at all. You know, we all have a way at times of sticking our foot in our mouth, saying things we shouldn't have said or wish we hadn't said. Love ignores those. Love says, you know, I've done the same thing myself. I've said things that I wish I hadn't said, you know. Um, But even where malice is present, even where hurt is intended, think how much more Jesus suffered for you. Can you not suffer wrong for his sake? That when Peter says love covers over a multitude of sins, that's what he's getting at. It puts an end to it. Instead of retaliating, instead of escalating, instead of raising the stakes, you just absorb it. Say, you know, you did that to me, but brother or sister in Christ, I forgive you. I'm going to let that go. Love covers a multitude of sins. And that's vital here because if you have Christians at war with each other, literally or figuratively, it can destroy a church. Now think about it. Suppose this church was destroyed by division, faction, strife, whatever. What would you do? You go find another church. Suppose you're living in a community in the first century and you're the only community of believers for hundreds of miles. That little church is it. And you fragment that, destroy that, devour one another. There's really nowhere else to go, and it destroys the witness to Christ in that community. There's not another church getting it done. And so it's certainly vitally important then, but it's also vitally important now, because it does harm the cause of Christ when Christians are at odds. So we're to live out Christ's victory, certainly in our thinking with our minds. We're to live it out in our hearts with our love for one another. Third way that he gives us here is to live it out with our homes. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, we know, and perhaps you've heard, how important hospitality was in that day, uh, given the fact that inns were often not a real nice place to stay sometimes, and just the need to to show hospitality to travelers passing through. That, That often was the case, but I don't think that's what Peter's getting at here, because notice what he says. Show hospitality to one another. He's not saying show hospitality to the strangers passing through, but to one another. Uh, to, to use their homes as an opportunity for fellowship, getting together with one another, uh, which was vitally important, especially as Christians in that day, and to some degree now, might lose other social connections by becoming Christians. They might have other people no longer associate with them. They might be under threat of persecution or the reality of persecution in various ways. Um, but by opening their homes to one another, that is one place where they're welcome. That is one place where they're loved. That is one place where they can have good interaction, fellowship with believers. Also for worship. Okay. Uh, they, they didn't have a grand old church building. They didn't have a relatively new church building. They didn't have any church building. Uh, They had to meet where they could, and very often that was simply to meet in one another's homes. And they needed places to worship. And so Peter's saying, you know, open your homes for worship. And don't grumble. You know, well, okay, well. But you know know how the kids run around and just wears on the house. And, um, you know, not grumbling. Freely, openly, gladly receiving one another in their homes to to do that. And that's another way that... uh, the victory of Christ is lived out. The reality of the church is seen. And I, I commend you because I know 
that many of you practice hospitality in one way or another, having people over, or even getting together with somebody, inviting them for lunch, that kind of thing is, is sort of a branch of hospitality. Um, but I know many of you practice that. And if you don't much, I encourage you to do that, to, to have people over, to enjoy fellowship in your home. The last thing Peter mentions here, he mentions our minds, our hearts, he mentions our homes, but we live out this victory of Christ here in the world with our gifts. Look at verses 10 through 11. As each has received a gift, notice that's not if you've received a gift, but as each one has, and the Bible elaborates on other places more on particular gifts, you know, places where we find lists of them, so forth. Peter doesn't develop that much here, but he just says, as you have received this gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So the gift is not so much yours absolutely, it's yours to use as a steward, Accountable to the Lord, answerable to the Lord for what you do with it. Remember the parable of the talents. There is a day of reckoning. What have you done with the talents that I gave to you? Uh, We're stewards. We use it to serve God. We use it to serve the church. Now, he mentions a couple aspects of that here. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. That's easy to think, well, that's the preacher, right? Um, well, yes, it would include preaching, but it would also include you who teach or lead Bible studies. Uh, to teach that not as, as your, your thoughts, your ideas, but to teach the scriptures for what they are, the word of God, the oracles of God, the truth of God, to recognize what a powerful thing it is that you're engaged in. And not just speaking, he says, uh, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Uh, in both cases, speaking, serving, or however you exercise the gifts, the opportunities, the ministries that God has given to you, doing it with an eye toward God, that this is God's word or that this is God's work. Uh, some, some of you served in the hands of Christ co-op. Others of you serve in different ways here in the church. Some of you volunteered to serve in different ways with Vacation Bible School coming up uh, actually now next month, believe it or not. Uh, do you do that conscious of God? Do you do that in a way that you, you consciously think, I am doing this with God's strength. I am doing this for God's glory. Because that's the next thing that Peter brings up here, that this is to the glory of God, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So we're back to what Paul said, whether you eat or drink, whether you teach, whether you serve refreshments, uh, whether you lead a home Bible study or host a home Bible study, whatever it might be, do it all to the glory of God. Do you live consciously each day for the glory of God? It transforms your day. It transforms your life when you recognize that whether it's your work, your school, whether it's eating and drinking, whether it's playing, whatever it is, Lord, this is for your glory. This is based in your truth. This is done in your strength. It makes a complete difference in what you do. And certainly, it should make a complete difference in the life of the church. Now, you could you should, you should almost contrast each one of these things that Peter mentions with the paganism out of which they came and in which they live. Instead of being drunken, Christian should be clear-minded. Instead of living in lust, the Christian lives in love. Instead of hosting wild parties, the Christian practices genuine Christ-honoring hospitality. Instead of exploiting one another, the 
Christian engages in Christ-like service to one another and to the world. Not because we're better, but because we're Christ's. Because we've been redeemed by Him. Because we belong to Him. Because we love Him. Because He saved us. Because our hearts resonate with the doxology with which Peter concludes this section. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank You that we are Yours. We thank You, Lord, that You have redeemed us. In some cases, Lord, coming to faith as children and being spared the ravages and scars and regrets of sin. In other cases, Lord, coming to Christ in later life and receiving the, the depth of Your grace and pardoning and cleansing from life of sin. Father, in either case, we thank you that Christ has atoned for our sin. We thank you that his power is at work in us, that we are new in him. Father, as we go out this week, help us to live in light of that. Help us to live deliberately and intentionally in our minds and our hearts and our homes and serving you all to the glory of God. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.